This is B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, and I am on the Champs-Élysées with René Gattel. Bonsoir. This edition of B-Side is about identity, who we are, and, and little things that shape who we are. And the fact that you're walking with a microphone and a recorder and headphones <laughs> shows that you're a journalist. I mean, it broadcasts to the world that you're out here doing some sort of a recording, a report of some sort. You speak English? No, just the little English. It's difficult. It's so difficult to speak English. Yes, hello. What are your names? Marwan. Yes. My name is Sofian. Sofian, yes. Enchanté. Enchanté. Listen, l'hymne national français en beatbox. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, attends. Allons, enfants de la What you're hearing is beatboxing of the French national anthem um, by this guy that we just met, he and his friend. Um, they're both French and Algerian. So, what is it like to be an Algerian in France? Depuis en France Oh, so you've been you've been in France since you were four. Is it difficult to you sort of strap? Oui. Est-ce que c'est difficile de d'être à la fois français et algérien? On est français avant tout. Algérien, c'est nos origines. On est on est de là-bas. Mais bon, c'est nos origines. Nationalité is algérien for the in French. They're French first. Algerian second. So your Algerian identity, would you want to give that up? Or, but that's, or is that still important to you? I, uh, it's my country, in my uh, art. But I like France. Uh, I like also France. When you meet people, do they assume that you're French because you speak French so well? Look, I uh, typical French boy. But what he's saying is that he's he's white, and so people look at him. He just looks like a good French boy, and everybody just assumes that he's French, and nobody really would guess that he's Algerian, but that it's totally different for his friend because his friend has much darker skin, and so um, people don't necessarily assume that his friend is French, even though both of them have lived in France since they were really little. French people are very, vraiment uh, ouvert. Open, very, very open. So we have we have a story about um, somebody who has two identities at once, and for them it's a little bit of a struggle. Here's the story from Sean Wynn. Three summers ago, I was a waitress at this little diner in the suburbs of Atlanta, and every day I'd have to put up with small talk about traffic and weather. The worst was when I had people try to guess where I was from, and they guessed completely wrong places like New Jersey and England, except I lived in Georgia from age four to the day I left for college, pretty much my entire life. So when I asked these customers why they would guess such a thing, they answered, your voice. The way you inflect words is just slightly different than sort of the average person, I guess. That's my friend Joe. He does an imitation of me. Oh, Joe, I had a sandwich for lunch today. 
Um, do you know what challah bread is? Okay, I... I don't know if I... I hope I don't sound like that. But what can you tell about someone from the sound of that person's voice? When you listen to me speak, what do you know about my identity? Can you guess my ethnicity? The place I was born? Where I grew up? I'm Chinese. Mandarin is my first language. But you wouldn't guess that I spent my whole life in Atlanta. It's, it's hard to explain. It's almost like, it kind of reminds me of the computer voice, like the woman uh, <laughs> in, the, in the laptop. I mean, that's obviously an exaggeration, but sort of the way that you speak is very precise and very measured, and there's just something slightly off about it. Okay, when Joe and I refer to the woman in the laptop, we're talking about women like Crystal. My name is Crystal. I was developed by a software company. I have no personality, history, or face. Crystal reads things off the computer screen out loud to you. That's who my friend is comparing my voice to. Crystal, the woman in the laptop, designed to be the accent-free, prototypical United States English voice. Only, I'm not a prototypical American. Like it or not, and I don't know if I like it or not, I don't get to be just American. It'll always be Asian American or Chinese American. I certainly don't look just American. When it comes to my voice and my perfect English, it's not that I was making some sort of effort to assimilate. Speaking this way wasn't a choice. It was just the result of growing up here. And it's also a step away from my parents. My parents, who left China in their late 30s, don't speak the way I do. Not only will they never be just American, I don't know if anyone refers to them as Chinese American. I don't think they call themselves that. This summer, I worked at a radio station, and someone sent an email through the station looking for native Chinese English speakers. I called to volunteer my voice, and the producer turned me down because I didn't sound Chinese enough. It wasn't an insult. I mean, it's true. Only... How do you respond to that? I'm a Chinese-American woman who grew up in the South, but you'd never know it if you don't get past the small talk. I don't want to talk small talk. That was Sean Wynn. She's studying literary arts at Brown University. I don't want to talk small talk. We've got bigger things to do. This is B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, and I am in Paris with René Gattel. So in between all of these haute couture stores like Cartier, you have this shimmering, glittery, tacky souvenirs of Paris shop, selling all sorts of little plastic Eiffel Towers and postcards that are ludicrously overpriced. And there's a guy in a McDonald's uniform picking up trash, which is weird because I don't see a McDonald's anywhere. Oh, no, 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 there's a McDonald's here along the Champs-Élysées. I've actually eaten there um, with my grandma. She came here, I was studying abroad, and she came here on, uh, on a vacation, and I got to spend a weekend with her in Paris, which was wonderfully fun. Uh, we sat down at this McDonald's ordering, like, I don't know, a cheeseburger or something, we started talking. And she told me the story that she had never told me before, that I don't think she ever would have told me back home. What was the story? It was a story about my mother, actually, her daughter. 
the long and the short of it was that when my mom was in her late teens or early 20s, she joined the Air Force, which totally stunned me because my mom is not a military type. But I guess she didn't make it through basic training. Um, it didn't really suit her. And this would have been in the 70s. And to get out of basic training, she told her superior officers that she was gay. She came out to them. Which, I mean, at the time that my grandma told me the story, I, my mom had been out as a lesbian for a while, and so I knew my mom was gay. That wasn't the surprising part. But um, I guess what was surprising to me is that my mom knew way back then. Because after this experience, she got married to my dad and had me and lived as a straight woman for a long time. So here we are in front of the McDonald's where I heard this story for the first time. Wow. You know, the, the, I guess what the story tells us in part is about the line between straight and gay is not an easy one for a lot of people. For a lot of people, I don't think their identity is, is one or the other. I mean, they say that there's like a scale, you know? and people can fall anywhere in between. For some people who identify as both evangelical Christians, so like really Christian and gay, it's, it's like nearly impossible because it's so hard to reconcile those things. And we have a story from Carrie Seed about the man who was one of the founders of what's known as the ex-gay movement. Here's Carrie. Frank Worthen spent 25 years living what he calls the gay lifestyle. He had relationships, but they didn't last. He slept around. Mostly, he says he felt really alone. He didn't believe that he could be gay and be saved. He says he even thought about taking his own life. But instead, he gave it to God. He wasn't a psychologist. He didn't have a divinity degree. But Worthen left the companionship of gay men behind and started the first Christian ministry in the U.S. aimed at making gay people straight. Over the years, he's counseled thousands of Christian men and women who wanted to become ex-gay. In 1984, a friend set him up on a blind date with his future wife, Anita. We had decided that we wanted each other whether it be any sex or not. They liked each other, but their relationship tested all of Frank's theories. He'd identified as ex-gay for 11 years, but he still wasn't sure he was ready to be with a woman. It was early on in the ministry, and we had no evidence that ex-gay people could handle a marriage sexually. And we just didn't know, because we hadn't had marriages up to that point. But um, one day I was driving in the car, and the Lord kind of spoke to my heart and said, it's not a very big testimony for you to have a celibate marriage. And if you're willing to share your testimony, I'll give you a testimony to share. Okay, we were engaged, and we were kind of rolling around and, and uh, hugging, and yeah, and find, I got some feelings, nice, convenient, lustful feelings. <laughs> for Anita, and I, I, I began to realize that I could handle a marriage. We weren't going to try to have sex on our wedding night because of the pressure. But it was interesting, you know, laying together in the bed, not feeling guilty. I'd never felt that before. I mean, I'd had sex before many years ago, and Frank had had sex before. 
<laughs> but 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 we hadn't not with, ex- women. not with women no <laughs> we were able to consummate the marriage the first night which although we had agreed not to but we did We are commanded in our ministry to try to help people have hope. People that desire, you know, we get calls all the time from men who uh, are not happy being a homosexual. And they just want to know, is it possible? And that's our hope, is to, to reach those that, that, want, that want to change. And our testimony of our marriage, every aspect of it, is part of that hope. This is so comfortable, and uh, it's so peaceful, and it's so fulfilling. It's everything I ever wanted. The Woodlands say that in many ways their own marriage was an exception. They say many people are overcome by temptation and don't identify as ex-gay for long. lives in Berkeley, California, and we are very, very far from Berkeley, California right now. This is B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, and uh, this is Renee Gattel. We're probably, what, 5,000 miles away? I think approximately 5,000. I think that's what my frequent flyer mile thing said. We're on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Um, There's a little bit of everybody out here. Uh, Tourists, shoppers, mothers pushing strollers. Est-ce que nous pouvons demander quelques questions très vite? Super. Um, so what is your name? <laughs> Marie-Laure Miku. Enchanté, merci. Um, do you have children yourself? Yes, I have two, uh, two daughters. One, she's uh, 21, the other one. And the second one is uh, almost 18. Did you always know that you wanted children? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> For some women, I don't know, like for myself, the decision isn't that easy, you know? It's kind of hard, because I, I, you know, I'm 29, I work, mm-hmm. and uh, I feel like I would have to sacrifice a lot. How, how was the decision for you so much easier? Mm, it was easier, because I, I, it was nat- natural. I had done all my studies, and then I had to, to go on, on my life. Can you imagine your life without children? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I, I, yes. Um, I imagined when I what was I, when I was 20 or 20 years old. I thought you can choose each of it, uh, and you have to do very happen happy uh, if you are with children or without children. But now I know <laughs> what is uh, what I. My life was uh, well. I'm I'm divorced, you know. That is very important for me, and I'm very happy with my children and my two daughters. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. So basically she said she couldn't imagine her life without children. Like there was a time when she thought, oh, I don't need them. And then now she is thrilled that she had them. Our next story is about a woman who has chosen not to have children. And one of the reasons that she chose not to have kids is because she herself grew up as a motherless child. And so now she is a childless woman by choice. Here's Julie Kane. I keep getting invited to births. I even get repeat invitations. 
So far, I've seen four babies come into the world, and I've cut two of their umbilical cords. The oldest of these kids is a 14-year-old girl who's super sassy, and the youngest is a little boy who's just learning how to crawl. Because I've done it so many times, the parents-to-be tell me that they feel really reassured having me in the room. You could say I've become something of an expert on the precision cult of baby-making. What is it? What is it? It's a girl. The fact is that I have never given birth, have no children of my own, and I don't intend to ever reproduce. It's not that I waited, expecting to have kids after I got a career off the ground, only to find out I couldn't get pregnant. And it's not that I don't like children or get creeped out by babies. I dig kids, and they dig me. Get under the covers, please. There you go. Pippi goes to a I'm a 40-year-old woman who is childless by choice. Tommy and Annika's mother had I grew up in a bachelor's house. I'm the only child of a single father. And this means that, unlike most of my childhood friends, I kissed dogs right on the mouth. My favorite toy for an entire year was a screwdriver. I carried it everywhere. I even slept with it sometimes. When I was a kid, I secretly thought that people with mothers were sissies. They had to take baths every day, and they needed to be coddled when they fell off their bikes. But while I scoffed at the gentler and generally more sanitary lives of mothered children, I also really longed for a woman's touch in my life, an initiation into the mysterious world of curling irons and eyeshadow. Sometimes I watch my mom friends with a kind of experiential envy. I'll never know what it feels like to have a baby kicking inside of me, and I'll never know what it feels like to breastfeed an infant. It feels like a kind of disconnect from the world of women. But I do know what it feels like to hold someone's finger while they walk down the street. I go to dance recitals. I take sobbing, angst-ridden adolescent phone calls late into the night. I change diapers and I give baths. I say no, although not as often as I say yes. Shushu sleeps with me. Miel is one of the kids I saw born. She's six years old now, and recently I was babysitting her, and when it got time for bed, she started instructing me in this very elaborate bedtime ritual she has where she has to individually swaddle each one of her dolls and stuffed animals and then put them all to bed. Oh, and Snowy sleeps in that basket. While we were going through this, I, I said to her, without thinking about it too much, Miel, you're going to be such a great mom someday. You're taking such good care of all your creatures. And she immediately turned to me and said, Who says I'm going to be a mom someday? You're not a mom. Well, I was really surprised to hear those words coming out of my mouth because I know better than anybody that being a mom isn't the only way to take good care of little creatures. She took a sugar spoon out of another bowl and began to sprinkle granules. So I'm getting older now, and the biological choice of whether to reproduce or not is less and less in my hands. But I have no regrets about my decision. It makes me who I am. I've taken this path that's led me from being a motherless child to being something like a childless mother. And the kids in my life teach me just how important that is every day. So little baby Don't you cry One of these mornings You gonna run up That was producer Julie Kane. This is B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm here with Renee Gattel. Salut! And we're walking the Champs-Élysées, 
and we can see thousands of people. We're at a little bit of an elevation walking down so we can see the tops of lots of people's heads. All bobbing up and down. Do you like to people watch? I love to people watch. Like we go to heavy metal concerts and I just like stand outside of the bathroom watching people because it's just fascinating. What, what do you like about it? Oh, it's just, you know, the study of humanity. Um, and sometimes, not just at heavy metal concerts, but I sort of think about who has dyed their hair <laughs> and who has a good dye job and who has a bad dye job. Uh, why don't we try to ask some people around here about hair dye? Et on parle des, des gens qui colorisent leurs cheveux. Okay. Can you speak English? Un peu, oui. So, um, first of all, I mean, your hair is beautiful. You have these like purple bangs. Why have you decided to color your hair? I think with this color, it's more flashy. When you when you look at me, you don't forget about me. That's why. But I don't like really uh, simple haircuts. I always make some color in my hair. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, and and so you do this all the time. Yeah. Every month I change my haircut. Yeah. Every month. Merci beaucoup. De rien. <laughs> Bonne journée. Thank you. Au revoir. She's a case where there's no pretense of like trying to make it look natural. Right. Qu'est-ce que vous pensez des femmes qui colorisent leurs cheveux? Bah, je trouve ça. Euh, je, je trouve ça bien, moi. Elles s'accordent avec leur style, donc ça me dérange pas. So I asked him what he thinks of women who dye their hair, and he says that it's fine with him. It, it just depends on the style. Est-ce que vous pensez que les femmes avec les cheveux gris euh, devraient coloriser leurs cheveux? Euh, non, moi je trouve ça très, très, très beau. C'est, enfin, euh, généralement les gens qui ont les cheveux gris, c'est les gens. Euh... Uh, I asked him, you know, what he thinks of women who dye their, who, whose hair are gray and whether they should dye them, and he says no, and he actually finds the gray hair really beautiful. Merci beaucoup. Merci. Bonne soirée. Uh, to color the gray or not to color the gray? Here's Sarah Wood. It starts in the back, like way back here, and it's like moving its way forward. Can you see it? Uh, no. It's like way in the back. I don't see it. No, you have to look because it's in the back. Okay, look, just look. You're, I'm taller than you. This is hard. You see it? Um... Is, is, and it's just one? No, one hair? it's like many. It's many? Like, it's like a group of them. And basically, this is where I want you to look. It's like coming in from the back where Dennis the Menace started to grow his okay, colic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see any gray hair? No. No, no. Look in the back. Look in the back. Oh. 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 You see it? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm standing in front of the bathroom mirror, and I can see them coming in. And it's been like this for about maybe four years. It was right at that point where I told myself, okay, you're gonna stop dyeing your hair color and go natural. And as soon as I started to let my hair go natural, I started to see gray hair. Noticing that gray hair was becoming my natural state, I decided I don't wanna stop dyeing my hair. Okay, it's uh, 10.30, I'm on my way to Target. Here we go. So I'm telling all my friends I can't wait to be 30, but I'm 27 and I'm already covering up things I don't want people to see. And there's no sense of trying to have a 
routine and maintenance to keep this stuff undercover when it's just going to keep happening. I'm looking for the same color. This stuff is just going to keep happening. It's a progression. And sometimes we have early progressions. And I don't think I'm ready to have gray hair. Hi, I'm Marin, and I feel privileged to be part of this hair dyeing process. As if anyone hasn't colored their hair at home, I always make sure that I'm not going to get it on anything like rugs. It looks like we're sort of clear here. And, and every time I dye my hair, I feel you like... You just cut the top off the applicant, because you have a I'm a in the guillotine, and then being murdered. And you just kind of rub it in your roots. Like something about this genuine sense of myself that I have is just killed. Like, I'm not really behind what I say. I'm just going to go back over it one more time. I don't want to dye my hair. Does it hair look even? Because yes, I feel like I'm of. a phony. Yes. Okay. I'm curious to now see how this minutes. would grow if I let so, it go. This is a, supposed to be a brown. I wonder what it would look like. I chose this color last year because it seemed more natural. Like, it seemed to be the color that my hair would be turning if I wasn't going gray. I think I would look old. And, um... I don't want to look that old yet. I'm not ready for that. I never get anyone else's opinion, so it's good to have you. <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty good to me. It actually looks pretty wicked. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to tell you this. We laugh a lot. So, so, so these are two sisters. This is Mia and Tony, and they're in their 40s. Mia's a little bit younger than Tony. They both started going gray in their late 20s, and Mia, the younger one, has never touched the hair dye. And Tony decided in her mid-30s to start covering up her gray. So this is Mia, who hasn't dyed her hair. I mean, I think Tony and I both are young-looking, and we sound young. I mean, people say that... that they, they're surprised when they find out how old we are. But like, one time we went and got a drink and Tony got carded and I didn't get carded. And I was, so you know what I mean? It's like starting to really, I'm, I'm like, wow, you know, my hair is w probably what's tipping people off. And this is Tony who has dyed her hair. Every three weeks, my hair grows in, you know, fast. Every three weeks I go and I pay $90. Every three weeks? Isn't that great? If it grew slower, <laughs> I would have to go in every three weeks. And, um... Yeah, I'm sort of tired of it, tired of that. I would like to just at least see myself. What does it look like? But I guess I'll have to bite that bullet. <laughs> it's like the fighting gets tiring after a while. Like I feel like I'm kind of fighting it now. Before I was really enjoying it. And I still, I do enjoy it. But I, you know, fighting makes you weary. You get tired after a while. Yeah. I'm thinking maybe I'm going to stop dyeing my hair. After being around Mia and Tony for a couple hours made me kind of realize I don't really have the energy to keep doing this. I'm just going to try not dying it the next time around, I think. Okay, right now I'm standing in the bathroom mirror with a pair of tweezers pulling out gray hair. The problem is, is there's too much of it now. It's hard to also just grab the gray hair and it hurts. Oh, it hurts. That hurts. I can't do that that many times. I'm going to have to dye it again. 
I can't. I can't let this grow. These gray hairs are calling me on something that I'm lying about. And what they're calling me on is that I don't want to get old yet. I'm not ready for this. All right. I'm just going to go back over it one more time. No way. I'm too young to look old. But I like old things. <laughs> Loving Care Color Lotion, only from Clairol. Because you're too young to look old. That's all for this edition of B-Side, and huge thanks to Renee Gattel for coming along for the ride and being stuck translating, talking to strangers. De rien. You're welcome. Absolutely. We had contributions from Julie Kane and Sarah Wood and Sean Wynn and Carrie Seed. I'm Tamara Keith, B-Side senior producer. Thanks so much for listening. And please visit our website. It's bsideradio.org. That's the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org. There will be plenty of pictures from this show online. Au revoir. Au revoir. Bye-bye.